Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 39. Welcome back. The purpose of this podcast is to explore philosophy, psychology, and science in an effort to establish that we have a mind and that our minds are free to create purposeful activity to make the world a better place. Please follow the podcast on the Facebook page at Cunning of Geist and on Twitter also at Cunning of Geist. In this episode, I'll be tackling the difficult subject of whether there was or was not a creation, an actual creation event of the universe. Now, we've touched on this issue in previous episodes, but I want to devote an entire episode to it because it's a very important topic. It, it From almost any standpoint that you want to look at it, from a religious, from a scientific, from a philosophical standpoint, it's just really central to one's understanding of what's, what's going on. Also, importantly, for Hegel students, it's a big question regarding his philosophy, and there are some different interpretations of how he viewed this, and we'll be getting into it. So, as I did in the last episode, I want to begin with my conclusion, and then I'll detail how I got there in the body of the episode. And my conclusion is this, that there was in fact no actual creation event. The world has always existed and always will. However, it seems that the world does go through cycles, a cyclical universe, and this allows the world to be viewed as one whole, which I'll be explaining. And by cyclical, I'm not talking about eternal recurrence as in Nietzsche, where everything repeats exactly like it did before, What I'm talking about is eternal movement around a circle, but always being fresh, always a new cycle that builds on the previous cycle. It is the ever-present now going around the circle, but it is the circle itself that evolves. It improves from round to round, sort of like in the movie Groundhog Day. If you remember that movie with Bill Murray, where he relives the same day, but he can make changes in that same day. So the same events happen to him, but he's He's aware of it, and he can he can improve things, and he can do much more each day that, that, that goes by. So things do improve for him. Now, again, that's a just one analogy. It's not quite exactly perfect to what I'm going to be talking about, but I think you get the picture. Now, there's another good image of this circling cosmos, and that's the ancient Ouroboros symbol. That's the snake eating the tail, the end of its own tail. And I'll discuss this later in detail, but I just wanted to mention it now. And I believe that the model that Hegel is putting forth supports this, uh, which I'll be discussing. So that's the summary. Uh, I I know it's a lot to take in, and hopefully I'll be able to explain how, how I came to this conclusion in this episode. Now, let's get into some specifics. To begin with, there are two fundamentally different views of the universe that exist today. Generally speaking, in the West, the tradition supports the notion of a creation event. This is most prominently seen in the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all speaking to a creation event by God. Whereas in the East, Hinduism and in the ancient Chinese texts They believe in a cyclical cosmos, or a repetition, a rebirth. So you have two inherently different views. And I'm going to show in this episode why I believe the Eastern view is more on target than the Western view. Now, for those that believe that the cosmos was in fact created, that there was a creation event, the more or less Western view 
In general, there are two different narratives here, one religious, one scientific. The first religious view is that there's a God, and this God created the world, and then the world began, as in the Bible. And the second view is the scientific, that somehow the world burst forth from nothing in the Big Bang some 14 billion years ago. Now, I should add that some interpret Hegel as saying at the end of his science of logic something similar to the religious view, that the idea, the creative reasoning idea, which some Hegelians liken to God, which is the culmination of the science of logic, that this idea freely releases itself, and that's a quote, freely releases itself into the externality of nature. Now, as I mentioned, there are different takes on this within the Hegelian community. Some believe it is like an actual creation event. Only here, it's the idea, uh, the summation of the science of logic that takes the place of God as the creator. Others take Hegel's statement here as a euphemism, that he's speaking metaphorically. And what he means is that the idea at the end of the logic turns out to be, in fact, nature. One and the same, two ends of the same stick. Now, uh, this creation story, let me address what I see some of the problems are, both from a religious and a scientific standpoint. First of all, having a creator implies some sort of real existence to the creator apart from the creation. So the question is just, where does this creator exist outside the creation? What is its basis? And why does it need to create anything? In traditional religion, the objection can be framed as such, if God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, and perfect, then what is the need for creation? And also, if this God creates something separate from itself, then this God is not the God of all and everything. If it gives its created beings free will to do what they please, then they have a separate will and being apart from God to some extent. This makes God less. Uh, and this is a fundamental problem, I believe, with the, the Genesis story, in my view. God is not in full control. In Genesis, there's a devil, the snake that tempts Eve, and so on. God banishes Adam and Eve from paradise. Again, a separation. And I see a similar problem here in when Hegel's logic is taken in the same light, that there's some entity that creates nature. This seems to imply a separation of the logic from nature implied by this. And I don't believe this to be the case. I, I, they're obviously different. One's the othering of the, of the other. But they, I believe they are, in fact, two aspects of the same whole. And we'll be, I'll be discussing this. They come together in spirit, the third part of Hegel's philosophy. Now, we'll get to this in a moment. But let's move on to the Big Bang, back to science. The idea of the Big Bang first appeared in a 1931 paper by George Lemaitre. He was a Belgian cosmologist as well as a Catholic priest. Uh, Lemaitre was not comfortable with the static notion of the universe, that, that it was always the same. And he, and he felt there was evidence that it, the universe was expanding. And there was evidence for this. Ed, Edwin Hubble, a few years earlier, found direct evidence for this. And Lemaitre took all this and extrapolated backward and suggested that the universe might have begun in a super dense point or singularity, a primeval atom, as he called it. After Lemaitre's paper, evidence continued to mount for the Big Bang Theory, and there was certainly a, a religious feel to it, almost biblical, that all and everything came from a single point. Was this the creation event? Maybe the fact that Lemaitre was a Catholic priest contributed to this notion. And this idea has been taken up for, as proof of the creator. 
relatively recently religious philosopher William Lane Craig has used it in his Kalam cosmological argument. He wrote a book with that title. Kalam refers to medieval Islamic scholasticism. And the argument goes like this. Whatever began to exist has a cause. The universe began in the Big Bang. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And this cause must be uncaused, i.e. God. Today, the Big Bang theory is nearly universally believed in. And and this is important. However, there's been some recent discoveries that suggest that the Big Bang was not the beginning, that 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 this concept of a, an initial singularity is no longer believed. And this obviously is a defeater for the column cosmological argument. Now, here's what, what went on. While current physics could trace the universe back to one second after the Big Bang, that's pretty amazing they could get that close, they could not get past this one-second barrier. What happened in this first second? What was going on before that? It turns out that science needs to postulate some events in that first second, and even before that first second. It needs to do this to have the universe turn out as it did in terms of mass and energy. And to do this, they had to develop a concept called cosmic inflation, in which in that very early period, in that first second and before, before the actual hot Big Bang, the universe expanded tremendously, very quickly. And then the hot Big Bang occurred and expansion began to slow. So because cosmic inflation preceded the Big Bang, we know something preceded this inflation. We just don't know what. Let me read a quote I found just last week from BigThink.com. It's from an article entitled, Surprise, The Big Bang Isn't the Beginning of the Universe Anymore. Quote, We can no longer speak with any sort of knowledge or confidence as to how or even whether the universe began. By the very nature of inflation, it wipes out any information that came before the final few moments, where it ended and gave rise to our hot Big Bang. Inflation could have gone on for an eternity, it could have been preceded by some other non-singular phase, or it could have been preceded by a phase that did emerge from a singularity. Until the day comes where we discover how to extract more information from the universe than presently seems possible, we have no choice but to face our ignorance. The Big Bang still happened a very long time ago, but it wasn't the beginning we supposed it to be, end quote. So, We've covered the different notions of how the world was created in one moment, and we've found problems in this line of thinking, both from a religious standpoint as well as from a scientific standpoint. And science is now telling us the Big Bang was not the beginning at all. In fact, there may not even be a beginning. Um, now, the, the fact that the Big Bang had a predecessor doesn't mean the universe is cyclical, but it also doesn't, you can't rule that out either, but we'll get to that in a moment. Now, let's get on to Hegel. And here's what I believe is really going on here. It's my interpretation of Hegel. And briefly, again, let me just go over Hegel's overall scheme. First, there's logic, the logic, pure reasoning. This culminates in the creative idea. Secondly, there's nature, which is the othering of this idea, pure externality without any subjective freedom. And thirdly, there's spirit, which is the sublation of the first two. Spirit unfolds in a historical process through people individually, through society, and through art, religion, and philosophy. And I like to compare this this overall system back right to the beginning of Hegel's logic, uh, which we detailed way back in episode three, being and nothing, the beginning of Hegel's logic. As you recall, pure presuppositionless being turns out to be the same thing as nothing, absolute nothingness. 
and nothing as the other or being turns out then to be something. So they both become the other, and thus is born the notion of becoming. And it is this becoming that is foundational for Hegel. And becoming next logically shows itself to be what he calls determinate being in German as design. And that's translated, I translate it as being that is there. Now, before this, there was just presuppositional being. It's not quite there yet. It is not yet determined. It's continually becoming nothing and nothing's becoming being, but it's not settled yet into a being that is there. It's only the sublation of being and nothing through becoming that being becomes determined of being, being that is there. Now, this determinate being is always in a state of coming into being and ceasing to being, but it continues to always be there. It's much like the present moment of time, always coming into being, always ceasing to be, yet always there. And a similar thing I believe is going on with logic and nature. They're both moments of spirit. Spirit corresponds to becoming. The logic the reason corresponds to being, nature corresponds to nothing, and spirit is the developing realization of the creative logical idea within nature. Spirit is there. It's the real, actual world. Logic, reason alone, is not the entirety. It does not exist separately from nature uh, as its own reality. It's real in its own sense, but it doesn't have full concrete reality until it others itself in nature and then sublates itself, sublates both of those elements, those notions, moments in spirit. They come together and solidify in becoming. They solidify in spirit. Now, I say this is my interpretation of Hegel. There are different thoughts on this. I should say that I do believe that my view corresponds to that of Hegel's scholar Stephen Hulgate. I would recommend that you read in his book, An Introduction to Hegel, Chapter 5, Reason in Nature, where he expresses it much better than I can why how the logic, in fact, turns out to be nature and how reason, logic, and nature go hand in hand and how spirit combines them both. Now, I want to get even more specific about what Hegel is saying here. And to do that, I'm going to use logic and reasoning and have that correspond to infinity and nature to correspond to the finite. You know, everything in nature is finite. And reason and logic, we can tend to think of as being more in the infinite realm. And Hegel addresses this notion explicitly in the logic in discussing the finite and the infinite. Now, he says that the infinite is not separated from the finite, but it is a transcending of the finite. We discussed this in the episode four, The Road to True Infinity. So infinity is not separate from the finite, but it is the finite transcending itself, as I just said. Hegel states, quote, finitude is only a transcending of itself. It therefore contains infinity, the other of itself. Similarly, infinity is only a transcending of the finite. It therefore essentially contains its other. The finite is not sublated by the infinity as a power existing outside it. On the contrary, its infinity consists in sublating its own self, end quote. And that, my friends, is it in a nutshell. They both come hand in hand together. Spirit, then, is the sublation of reason and nature. It is the finite going beyond itself, transcending itself. And that's where we find our freedom, which I've talked about before. That's why we are free, why our minds are free here. And they come together and they produce an evolution, the becoming of spirit. And this is basically what's going on here. Now, how do we get from all this to a a cyclical cosmos? Well, 
The circle is a symbol of wholeness, and uh, I mentioned in the intro the Ouroboros, the ancient symbol of the snake eating its own tail. And there's an amazing quote by Carl Jung on this that relates to what we've been discussing. Let me read it. Quote, The Ouroboros, the snake that eats its own tail, has been said to have a meaning of infinity or wholeness. In the age-old image of the Ouroboros lies the thought of devouring oneself and turning oneself into a circulatory process. The Ouroboros is a dramatic symbol for the integration and assimilation of the opposite. This feedback process is at the same time a symbol of immortality, since it is said of the Ouroboros that it slays himself and brings himself to life, fertilizes himself and gives birth to himself. He symbolizes the one who proceeds from the clash of opposites, end quote. It's an excellent symbol, and it's probably the reason why it persists to this day from the ancient ancient Egyptians and probably further back. It, it, you can see it on the symbol for the Theosophical Society. But what actually does it, does it symbolize? Well, Jung stated it very beautifully, but let me give it a try. The, the head of the snake is the present moment. It is always in a state of becoming, always moving forward, yet it encounters what has gone before, its own life. It, it's, it's devouring its tail as it moves forward. So there's a circular process. It's one whole, but it's continuing to move. And um, in eating its own tail, it's getting rid of the old life and fueling a new life. And what's very interesting here is that Hegel said something very similar, very similar to this Ouroboros symbol, that the past is, in fact, the future. Let me let me state this quote. Quote, the point tends toward a place which is its future and vacates one which is the past. But that which it has behind it is at the same time that at which it will arrive. And it has already been at the after toward which it tends. Its goal is the point which is its past. The truth of time is that the goal is the past and not the future, end quote. That's a pretty remarkable quote. And we've had a, several great discussions in the Hegel study group on Facebook on just what this means. Now, one interpretation is that time itself is actually a circle. It's like that uh, famous quote from uh, True Detective by Russ Colt, time is a flat circle. And the circle, like the Ouroboros, represents wholeness. And given this, given what Hegel said, given this Ouroboros symbol, I'd like to proceed with my own speculation here. And, and let me tell you straight out, this is a pretty pretty radical thought. I have no idea whether the cosmos is actually what I'm going to say now, but I think it follows from what we've been discussing, and I'd like to review it with you now. I know for me personally, it's important to try to keep pushing my comprehension, pushing my, my thinking. Even if I can't dot all the I's and cross all the T's, I like to push the boundary. So here goes. If a hot big bang lay in our past, perhaps it also lies in our future as well. And here's my bold thought. What if the physical laws of the universe evolve through each rotation along with spirit? Now, it's pretty remarkable just how fine-tuned the universe is. And I'm just talking about natural laws here. Consider this. Let me quote, quote, if the state of the hot, dense matter immediately after the Big Bang had been ever so slightly different, then the universe would either have rapidly recollapsed or would have expanded far too quickly into a chilling, eternal void. Either way, there would have been no structure in the universe in the form of stars and galaxies. 
Even given the above fine-tuning, if any one of the three short-range forces had been just a tiny bit different in strength, or if the masses of some elementary particles had been a little unlike they are, there would have been no recognizable chemistry in either the inorganic or organic domain. Thus, there would have been no earth, no carbon, etc., let alone human brains to study. And that's from an article by Kay Landsman in 2016 called The Fine-Tuning Argument, Exploring the Probability of Our Existence. Now, let me read a few specifics on this fine-tuning from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy to support this. Quote, The strength of gravity when measured against the strength of electromagnetism seems fine-tuned for life. The strength of the strong nuclear force when measured against that of electromagnetism seems fine-tuned for life. The difference between the masses of the two lightest quarks, the up and down quark, seem fine-tuned for life. The strength of the weak force seems to be fine-tuned for life. End quote. And there are many other amazing coincidences regarding the laws of the universe and the appearance of life. Given this fact, it may be possible that the universe goes through a series of rounds, each time fine-tuning its laws, so the next round can produce life and mindful entities perhaps sooner and perhaps better. Now, fine-tuning is usually rejected by science because it hints of God and creationism. But something else may be going on here, and this is what I'm getting at. It could be that a situation where the laws of nature evolve along with us. Now, to our knowledge, the laws of nature don't change every day. Uh, the sun will rise tomorrow, and etc., as far as we know. So it's possible maybe they change in that intermittent period um, after the expansion stops in that period right before the next Big Bang, in the quantum soup that precedes the, this cosmic inflation. And how would this be possible? Well, maybe just like the way biological evolution proceeds here on Earth, there may be random changes, material mistakes that occur in the formation of the Big Bang each time. It's, it's a pretty major event. And if one of these random changes improves the chances and timing of life, it gets locked in. And evolutionary improvement continues round to round. And this may still be occurring. Again, let me say, this is all pure speculation on my part. And it's just sort of fun to you know, see where, where this leads. But I think it's, uh, it is based on what we've covered, both from Hegel and both from, from science. So now let me come to my last point here. Um, and I want to discuss the great Kabbalist Isaac Luria and one of his concepts called Zimzum. Now, we discussed Luria in episode 7, Hegel and Mysticism, as well as in episode 15, Was the Natural World Freely Created? Isaac Luria was a prominent Jewish mystic and Kabbalist who lived in the 16th century in the community of Safed, and then what was the Turkish Ottoman Empire of Syria, today it's Israel. And he's widely considered to be one of the top, if not the outright king of the Kabbalists. And much like Socrates, he wrote practically nothing. And his mystical philosophy was written down by his students. Now, I want to focus on his important concept of Zimzum. This concept refers to how God created the universe, according to Lurianic Kabbalah. And it does this through a process of contraction, of himself. He contracted his affinity, if you will, to allow a space to exist for finite things, including people. Let me read a quote from Rabbi Moshe Miller, which explains this, quote, prior to creation, there was only the infinite God filling all existence, 
When it arose in God's will to create worlds and emanate the emanated, he contracted in Hebrew Zimzum himself in the point at the center, in the very center of his light. Now, this is key. So, Luria has God contracting himself to make room for the finite world. Now, even though there's the external world out there, God has contracted itself into a point at the center. So, you know, a point is both there and not there. It's in, you know infinitely small, but it, it's there. So you have this point, and then you have empty space, the finite world of time and space surrounding that point. And I believe this has much correspondence to the Hegelian concept of reason othering itself into nature. Hegel's move from the end of the logic to the beginning of nature may be somewhat similar to this. And this does provide a great left-brain model of the process, again, a way to describe and not the actual, it's not a circle and a point, but you get the idea. An expansion of space, the othering of reason, can also be looked at as a contraction of mind, a contraction down to leave space by itself. Uh, but the, the infinitesimally small point is still there at the center. It's there, but not there. And it's interesting, the, an expanding universe can also be looked at as, rather than the universe is expanding, maybe the, the observer is shrinking. Some of you that are old enough may remember that 1950s movie, The Incredible Shrinking Man. From the shrinking man standpoint, he was not shrinking, but the room was expanding. Everything was getting further and further away. So contraction and expansion are really two ends of the same thing, depending on your perspective. To the shrinking man, the room is expanding. To the room, the man is shrinking. I believe this may be a way to understand Hegel's turn from the logic to nature. Logic does not disappear, but just contracts itself to a point in the center to allow for the full externality of nature uh, to exist. And it's there, the logic is there, but it's not there, if you will. And this then, this, this point, allows spirit to start developing within nature and you know, do its, its evolution through an historical process. First life develops, then conscious thinking, rational creatures develop as spirit evolves, and so on and so forth. Now, in a final turn of my speculation, I'm going to go to the Big Bang. As I mentioned before about cosmic inflation, perhaps this was actually a cosmic contraction of mind and reason, uh, rather than expansion of space. Spirit may have been like the incredible shrinking man, making it more like the room and the universe are expanding, when in fact it was mind and reason that was contracting itself to allow an othering process to happen. Um, and this could go on from one cycle to another as a whole process. The point, logic, reason, it would have a greater presence in, in the universe through spirit, and it would grow and grow, and then it would reach some point as far as it could take it, and then it would, again, contract itself back to the point, and then you have another big bang, and it goes on and on. Again, now, as I said three or four times already, this is purely wild speculation on my part. And as we know from Hegel, the owl of Minerva only takes flight at night, and we only know what's going on after the fact. But as I've said, this is pure speculation. Uh, but the, there is some theoretical basis for, for cosmic cycles that corresponds to Hegelian philosophy and to current science. Now, to summarize again, I do not believe the universe was created at some point. I believe there's scientific evidence for this. I believe it resembles more the symbol of a circle eternally evolving. 
I mentioned in the beginning about Eastern religions and uh, a key concept within many Eastern religions and Eastern philosophy is that of reincarnation. Now, I'm not arguing for the transmigration of souls here, but I think that a general line of thinking, this view of things as a circle and regenerating when it comes to the cosmos may be a better model than the traditional religious creation mode. So that's a wrap for this episode. I know it's a difficult and controversial subject, but hopefully I provided some food for thought. As always, all references cited here will be listed on the Facebook page at Cunning of Geist. Please tell your like-minded friends about this podcast, and please share links to this and the other episodes on social media. And again, I want to thank you so much to everyone that's been listening. This is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist. See you next time.